0: You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon everyone. We're going to start the next session. Uh, you're all very welcome. Uh, my name's Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is Trinity's Arts and Humanities Research Institute. We are coming to the end of the Arts and Humanities Research Festival, but I'm really pleased that we have an opportunity to begin thinking about the topic of this session. It's hard to believe It's almost 35 years since the collapse of the wall, uh, the the slow uh, end and demise of a particular kind of communist experiment. And we've called this session, The Long Shadows of Communism. But in fact, those shadows run backwards as well as forwards in time. And both of our speakers for this session are in different ways uh, addressing the curious landscape uh, of that long era of communism. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome from Russian and Slavonic Studies John Murray. John we contracted your title Beyond Belief to fit it onto the program which you are going to tell us in more detail when you speak I think in a minute uh, about the question of, of representations in the Soviet system in media. Uh, and from uh, European Studies my colleague Balaj and Balaj who runs our Center for Resistance Studies in Trinity is going to be speaking on a theme in which he is very much an expert, that the question of or the representation or the evolution of the strong man uh, and the veneration of, of the, the dictator figure in Eastern Europe. Uh, so both uh, subjects which are topical, both of interest across many disciplines. So we'll be hearing from both speakers and then I hope we'll be able to have some discussion and questions. Balaj, over to you. Sure,
1: I'll I'll go up there. Thank you very much for the introduction and and for the invitation. I'm going to keep it very short um, as per the instructions. And I'm also going to be uh, very brief uh, and and try to be uh, very basic in general. So there will be a couple of ideas that I'm going to Um, reflect upon and i'm more than happy to discuss all of those um, uh, after the presentations i'm I'm more of a fan of discussions especially um, at a festival uh, like this so uh, i would like to start with the title um long shadows of communism um and why we chose the title did we choose the title i can't remember but why why uh, the title makes sense and what, what what i actually think about the title and i'm just trying to kind of relate my own research to the title of the session. It re- it's a very general title, and of course it's, it's useful to, to bring uh, us together, and we wouldn't normally work on on, on a similar topic. Um, but of course when you read a title like this 30, 35 years after the collapse of communism, then you might legitimately ask the question, why do we bother? Why do we still care uh, about communism? Uh, it 's all history um, um, why don 't we move on and There are of course uh, scholars and and indeed uh, people in the media who argue every now and then, especially at the occasion of anniversaries that that post communism is now over, uh, and we should consider the period starting with one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine as a as a different as a, as a unique historical Um, uh, period on on its own right and they would certainly have a point but then again you you would have uh, events like the tragic and the brutal war in Ukraine uh, which would be very difficult if not impossible to understand without um, a a good and and complex understanding of Soviet history and its uh, long-lasting impact uh, in the region um, I mean, there are, there are gazillions of examples that we could mention here, and, and probably those of you in the room would be familiar with those, but probably one of the most um, uh, recent examples to, to um, uh, illustrate the long shadows of communism is the unveiling of a statue in Moscow to Felix Dzerzhinsky. Uh, Connor might have seen the picture. It's, it's a giant statue. It's not even a modest statue. Dzerzhinsky was the founder of the Cheka. Uh, of uh, the predecessor of the KGB and, of course, the FSB, and they, they erected the statue in front of the Lubyanka which is the infamous uh, headquarters of the former KGB. So as long as you have these things happening and as long as one of the largest and one of the most powerful countries in the world is run by a bunch of kgb led we do, uh, I would argue, uh, have the right to talk about uh, the shadows and, and legacies uh, of communism. Now the concept that I would use is not really shadow, um, it's more like a metaphor. Uh, the concept that I would use is, is, uh, is uh, legacy, and in fact historical legacy. Um, now the term legacy um, is of course an oft-used term, as a, as a, as a metaphor that we, uh, we throw around a lot, but we do, don't really tend to define it uh, thoroughly um, and uh, interestingly enough it is uh, specifically the communist legacy that triggered relatively uh, concise and coherent definitions of what we actually mean by historical legacy There's of course a, a, a ton, tons of um, uh, literature There's a whole field that grew out of this um, uh, event called transitology that, that revolved around the notion Uh, of legacy without of course um, offering um, thorough definitions but there are very useful definitions of historical legacy and when we talk about long shadows i think it's it's the it's the notion of historical legacy a thoroughly defined analytical concept uh, that we should use um, uh, instead And that's the concept I became interested in in the last um, uh, couple of years. Now, there are all sorts of definitions out there and they enable us to to reflect on the dynamics of persistent and change, basically what remained the same or what remained unchanged and what is it that that is new. Um, So basically the historical legacy or historical legacies help us um, kind of account for the revival of certain structures, phenomena, uh, ideas, attitudes, uh, political practices, after historical rupture in a modified form. So what I'm trying to say here is that the notion of historical legacy includes and embraces continuity as well as change. So it's not synonymous with the notion of historical continuity. It's a rather different concept. It's a a bit more flexible that enables us to to account for both change and and, uh, continuity, or endurance probably, be uh, a better term. uh, and I, I think that this is a, probably the best term that helps us understand how the shadows of communism work uh, and why they are so long. Uh, and the example that I would use here is, is, is of course um, what I mostly work on is the cult of the leader. Uh, my own um, area of expertise revolves around um, uh, the communist practice of venerating of leaders. I focus mostly Uh, on the Stalinist period but more recently I became interested in in, in the late socialist and the post-communist period as well and what really kind of struck me was not necessarily the the periodical recurrence of the leader cult uh, specifically in in Hungary or elsewhere Um, that's also interesting uh, of course but you have leader cults uh, everywhere, and it's more or less a timeless and universal phenomenon. But what I was struck by is not just the recurrence, but the links between uh, different types of cults across different historical divides. And if you take the 20th, 21st century um, um, history of Hungary, then um, arguably there were four or five uh, very different political regimes that produced the cultic veneration of the leader. In the, at the beginning of the 20th century, of course, you have the Austro Hungarian monarchy uh, with the official veneration of uh, almost the Tsar there, but not it's the Emperor, Emperor Franz Joseph. Um, and then, of course, in the interwar period, you had the right wing autocratic um, uh, uh, nationalist regime, uh, which is held together, uh, symbolically at least, by, by the cult of the regent, Miklos Horti. Um, after the Second World War, of course, you have uh, uh, the Stalinist regime. Um, uh, emerging in the late 1940s, early 1950s and of course the implementation of Stalinism also meant the implementation of this absurdly monumental cultic veneration of the leader. Uh, after 1956 this regime transformed into a softer kind of dictatorship uh, and it is still this debated whether there was a cult or not in Hungary after 1956 um, around Janusz the uh, the famous Figure who became synonymous with gulag communism, kind of this Hungarian version of communism, uh, and of course you could you could uh, uh, bring the story uh, up to the present day um, after 2010 or after 1989. Of course, uh, there's the emergence of of democracy, liberal democracy in Hungary, and after 2010 there is a there is something new, um, uh, which uh, I mean I'm not going to go into details there. I'm happy to do that during the discussions, but the. What is something new has already provoked the, the birth and, and multiplication of a whole range of new concepts. So how do we call um, uh, the regime of, of, of Orba? And again, what, what links these regimes together is the figure of the leader and the and, and, uh, kind of symbolic and ritual practices revolving around um, uh, the leader. And what also links these regimes together is that they all went out or went down uh, in spectacularly dramatic terms. So the historical rupt- rupture component uh, is very much there. In 1918, the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire explodes. In 1945, uh, Hungary is defeated by the Nazis and then the Stalinist Soviet Union. 1956 overthrows the Stalinist regime. 1989, of course, the, um, the, the famous year that brings down communism. And then, of course, 2010 is, is, is less dramatic, but. Um, and it's more like a gradual process. So all these kind of uh, historical ruptures kind of emphasize the importance of historical legacies. So despite the fact that you have these kind of very dramatic changes, political changes, new institutions, new elites, new practices, you have the revival of a specific practice around the figure of the leader and that i kind of find it very fascinating and that's why i was trying to look for uh, concepts um, to explain the return or revival of this phenomenon Uh, and i thought that historical legacy is probably the most appropriate one um out there at the moment Um, so i think um yeah um so they they kind of help us understand the historical legacies helps us understand why the phenomenon keeps on recurring uh, and it also explains how and why the leader class transformed um, uh, after uh, each historical rupture. But I think it's also a useful uh, term um, to bear in mind when we're trying to explain kind of recent developments in Hungary. Uh, of course, there are a lot that we need to account for there, and, and it's still it's not a not a not a finished story. It's an unfinished story there. But but we could certainly identify specific historical legacies. Um, um, being revived or reactivated since 2010 and of course there is the increasing or growing veneration uh, of Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, which echoes um, uh, similar practices from the 20th century one can identify specifically the late socialist legacy of representing political leaders but there's also the pre-socialist legacy that is actively revived by the elite itself and I'm going to hold here I think. Thanks.
2: Um, hello, everybody. Thank you uh, for uh, allowing me to talk here. Uh, so, I'm going to come at this from a completely different angle. Um, so, they, it's um, the long shadow of communism, but it's really oddly talking about the shadow of communism or of the Soviet Union on me <coughs> personally. Um, from the point of view of having lived there, worked there, studied there, um, and how I sort of expressed that as a as a painter. And just before I take you through, what I'll do is I'll take you through uh, the process of um, uh, how I constructed one particular painting that might be interesting. Um, and then I can talk more generally about uh, how I, vi- I visually express the impact that living in the Soviet Union has had on me, if that makes any sense. It's not very academic, but anyway. So just briefly, um, I first uh, uh, studied um, in the Soviet Union with my friend Connor there in 1984, was it? 1981, okay, right. So um, that's over 40 years ago, believe it or not. I can't believe I'm that old, but anyway. um, And then I subsequently worked in this, it, both in Ireland as a journalist and in the Soviet Union as a journalist covering the, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, and I, you know I've written, uh, and then I, I, I started work in Trinity in I think it was 2000, 2001 or two. Um, so I've I, you know I've written academic articles, a few books on on the Soviet Union and Russia. I published um, in newspapers, done some broadcasting, um, but about twenty years ago I sort of changed tack and I studied art and um, started to paint. And one of the, the themes that I keep coming back to in my, in my practice is the Soviet Union and the impact, the, you know, deep impact it had on me. And so, so I don't only paint about that, but that's you know an important strand of what I do. So um, and. I I did feel that um uh you know journalism or academic writing they expressed a lot of what I felt about it but uh, in more expressive idioms like even creative writing or visual art I had more scope to I suppose gi- give them a, a more personalized sort of sense impression of what the whole experience meant for me um so uh Without further ado, I'm just going to take you through one particular painting and how it, 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 it began and how it ended up as the painting it was. And then I'll just show you a brief um, video of an exhibition of paintings on the Soviet Union. Um, so, um, I have lots of um, magazines, journals, newspapers in my office. I was always struck by the photog- photographs in them. This is one from a, a, a magazine called Sputnik you know, which is uh, one of the only only, one of the only Russian words people knew in the west means satellite but it was uh, it existed in its current format from 1970 to 2000 it was to uh, 1991 and it was sort of uh, it was the same size as, if anybody remembers, the Reader's Digest and it was supposed to be a Soviet version of the Reader's Digest so they chose different articles uh, it was printed in ten languages It was for external consumption mostly, but they also printed a version in in Russian. And it was to showcase the most positive aspects of the Soviet Union. Uh, And this was sort of a strange image that just caught my attention. Um, It's it's an ad for uh, inviting people to travel on the Soviet railways. So that woman there is a conductress on the Soviet railway, and that's somebody in traditional Slav costume uh, carrying bread and salt, the traditional... Uh, items that you are used to welcome people. So I just thought, you know, quintessentially Soviet, although somebody said to me yesterday, she's very, she's very dark for a, new, for a Soviet person. Um, anyway, that's here. That was a Ukrainian who said that to me yesterday. Yeah. But, uh, so these are a couple more images that I used to uh, build the painting from. This one in particular of a train. So they're the images that I was struck by for whatever reason. That's also from Sputnik, 1972. And then I, I, I decided to use just the colours that are used in offset printing, which you'll see in newspapers. It's, it's, it's a way of printing. So you only use uh, sort of the you know, sign, sort of blue, red, uh, yellow, to, to make all the other colours, to sort of replicate the printed look um, of the images don't ask me why I did it but I thought it might be interesting it's because if you look at an image in a newspaper that's uh, created by offset printing with a magnifying glass you'd see that they only use this, this and this colour and they mix them to change uh, the secondary colours okay so, so that's sort of a, f- a first version so I uh, just you know, use little dots get the different colours and shapes, and I'm, I'm building up the canvas. It's uh, you have two by two metres, so it's quite big. It's big. And you know, when I started it, I didn't know how it was going to finish. But it's a sort of a it's a sort of a close-up. So you, you know, you're getting the orange, in your mix. You keep putting in. You know, bits of yellow, bits of red, until you get the right orange, what you think it is. So you step back and you see if the colours are working, like quantism. Um, and, of course, before you do it, you, you, you do a rough sketch in charcoal, which you can erase, because otherwise you won't, get, you won't get the accuracy, the figurative accuracy. So you do that. There, It's, it's sort of taking shape there. And uh, that's sort of near to completion. Uh, okay. Um, so, that's the first printed edited version in the studio. And I thought, yeah, it's okay, but there's something missing. It's, it doesn't express anything to me. It, was, uh, it expresses something, but I need to give it a bit more. So, that's what it looked like. And you know, sort of paints takes quite a long time to do it. It took quite a long time to do it. I said, well, I'll leave it. I said, no. It's a bit empty. It's lacking something. So then what, what I did was um, I tried you know, samples of a second layer, a more sort of expressive layer of what I felt about the, the painting. Uh, it, in a difficult way to express, but something, it needed something extra. So digitally, obviously I you know, took a photograph and you can make hundreds, of, I did sort of hundreds of tests to see what might work on the, you know, when I finally decided to paint over the first layer. So I'll just give you a, t- just a couple of examples, you know things like that, um, and then so you you eventually then all right you know you get to your studio you have this two meter painting in front of you, and I said okay, if you want to do something, do something, and that's the moment of truth because then all of your, all of your digital examples mean absolutely nothing, and uh, I I just sort of attacked it. And what, what, are, what, and um, that's the, that, you know, compared to the first layer, which is very deliberate, you're almost sort of copying in a particular way. The second layer, has, comes from somewhere else, and it's, um, it's, I don't know what you would call it, a sort of creative layer. Just what you feel this needs, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, that's it, because you can't take the paint off once you put the paint on. So. That's what it ended up as. And I thought, oh God, I've covered everything, all that hard work. But, you know, um, so that's what it looked like in the exhibition. And if I could, I'll just give you a a very brief uh, uh, video of how this is one of a series of four paintings. and this was at an exhibition uh, in Westport took place a year or so ago so that's the one so they're all sort of done in the same way and I've you know, applied second layers to all of the first layers they're all from Soviet newspapers or Soviet uh, journals and to different degrees they're blocked out so you know there's a lot of work going into those but you sort of have to be uh, sort of brutal. i um, I just briefly finish. Um, so I worked then on several more. Th- the methodology changed over the next year or so, but it's the same sort of thing. Inspired by a Soviet era photograph and reworked as a, a large canvas. So these are uh, so. That's a uh, regression the Ukrainian sniper it was actually mentioned mentioned by Putin just, just prior to the invasion to show that Ukrainians were the same as Russians. You know, they were Ajin Narod, Narod. These are uh, ice skaters. Um, they were sort of uh, sporting heroes of the Soviet Union. But actually, one of our external examiners, Shamil, he said, Oh, yeah, they were very well known. They were the first two to a defect to the West. So it's difficult for me to say why I chose the, p- the paintings, but uh, that's what's sort of nice about visual art for me, that you don't have to footnote why you chose it. It's just it strikes you. You know, you go through lots of images, and they either attract you or they don't attract you. And then, you, then I worked on them. And it's sort of the opposite of academic work, in a sense, because it's not totally explicable. You can't really explain a lot of it. Uh, but it's, it allows me; it gives me scope to express what I feel about my experience in the Soviet Union in a different uh, way. So that's my pitch. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, John. And we'll, we'll leave that final image up, perhaps as a backdrop, and have uh, collage. Up as well, and, and see maybe if we can spend a few minutes unpacking uh, what you've been showing us, John, and perhaps uh, connected or not connected to some of the themes that Balage has raised. And I'm going to open to questions in a second, but John, I might just ask you to say a little bit more because we accept that this is a, a particular form of, of visual art. It's a different medium. Uh, you're not expressing this in, in the form of academic language. Mm-hmm. So we don't expect you to say, this means this, or this means that. But can you tell us a bit more about how, looking back now at the work you've done, you feel about it? What are the emotions it produced for you? Well,
2: I I think um, in some of them I did feel that the image that was presented um, wasn't uh, true to the reality of living there. So there was a lot of, I felt anyway at the time, that there's a lot of pent-up emotion, negative emotion towards, not everything was negative by all means, but a lot of people were you know, fed up with the system. There wasn't a forum for them to express that. But you can see, even now, there's a huge amount of anger being unleashed in, you know, in the war even in Ukraine. But it, even in Russia itself, you know, when I talk to people who lived in the Soviet Union, they're dying to say how yes, we knew that this, you know, there was a lot of corruption, it didn't work very well. You know, it wasn't all bad, but so it's sort of, it's uh and I was, you know, a Westerner there from from Ireland in the eighties. I didn't know anything about anything, you know. But I could pick it up as well. And in a funny sort of way I always say this that leaving Ireland in the early eighties, it wasn't million, it wasn't huge. There was a lot of things that were so similar. I mean, one thing in particular, i one. Uh, just briefly finish on this. Um, at the time I went um, in 1981, I, I remember uh, this bishop in the Bishop Newman, very conservative bishop. And uh, he had just uh, been railing against the degeneracy of the young people, you know, going to disco as well, blah blah. blah. And, um, and then I went to Moscow, and in the hostel that we were staying in, there was always a private newspaper in the foyer, and I remember plowing through one of the editorials, which was the you know, the voice of the central committee, the Politburo. Um, what do you know? They were talking about the same thing, the degenerate, the young people were being uh, corrupted by this horrible pop music. So... In a way, I felt right at home. <laughs> and in Ireland as well, there's been a huge outpouring of anger about things that happened that you couldn't really express during the period. So it's not all anger, but
0: this—it's like this sort of stage, nice facade wasn't the reality. So. Exactly. So. Exactly. And um, without being reductive, uh, I think I saw me Hawk coming. Yes, one of the I suppose one of the questions I might anticipate that would come through today is you know, is this so far from uh, an Irish stereotyped uh, socio-historic rationale which has said, well, you know, we're a clan-based society at heart. Ireland too has thrown up its strong men, has had its leadership cults. We don't need to go back too far to find the Charlie Harpies and so on who were seen as the chieftains and how far is that? From the kind of uh, uh, Orban figures that, that you're addressing now, Balaj, and, and I realise like, before we throw this open to questions, I also want to say I mean, this is a very personal topic for each of you because you're personally involved. You know, this was your personal response, John, to what you experienced in the Soviet Union, and Balage. this is what you go home to when you go home. So we're not talking about these things simply in the absence. Uh, but uh, before he does so, uh, I'd like to thank Balage and John for talking to us today. For the <laughs> Hmm.